Hello, welcome to the Echidna, the ACM podcast that's sharp and close to the ground. In this week's edition, a string of big hitters, Frank Bongiorno, Mark Kenny and Peter Martin. It's been a big week. A budget, Shane Warne's memorial and even that slap at the Oscars made Australian politics. Chris Rock is hardworking Australians and Will Smith is Labor's higher taxes. So they've done the uh, labelling that. So, yes, straight away that's that's been memed up up the jacksie by all sorts of people. All coming up with me, Alex Crow, And me, Steve Evans. The big set piece of the week was the budget. No doubt about that, a pre-election budget. The polls show the coalition way behind Labor. So could Josh Frydenberg pull a rabbit out of the hat and the fat out of the fire. We brought together two heavyweights, Peter Martin, business and economy editor at The Conversation and a visiting fellow at the ANU, and Mark Kenny, professor at the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. Peter first, despite all the hoopla, will voters remember the budget come May? I think they will have forgotten it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Wonks like me will say, Yes, it's got a lot of nice features about it for the future. Other people will be more critical. No one is going to care. People will say, thank you for the temporary cut to uh, petrol excise. We need that. They're going to bank it and forget about it. And this is what we've seen every time there's a tax cut or something like that. Governments don't get thanked for it, not after uh, not after a week. I- I'm sorry to say, you know, I'm a budget nerd that this uh, the budget news cycle will be very short this week. I agree with that. I think Peter is a budget nerd. Um, <laughs> that is a fact. <laughs> that is a fact. Uh, but look, no, I also happen to agree with the point about I think voters will largely forget about this. I mean, you know, we always talk about budget bounces. Those of us close to the process, I think because we are close to the process reporting on politics and budgets, we tend to inflate the importance of them as sort of a big fixed piece event. This one obviously is the launch pad for the election. It does give the government things to talk about during the election campaign. So whilst voters generally might take it for granted and forget about it. I think on the hustings, the, the PM, the Treasurer and others will be out talking about the things they're doing for the economy. And it has very good economic fundamentals to talk about. The jobs, uh, the tight labour market for a start, very low unemployment. Uh, you know, the, the economy is a bullion. But I think that actually points to a bit of a problem as well, narrative-wise, for this this budget. And that is that the Treasurer wants to leverage the sort of ongoing emergency atmosphere as an excuse to do these cash payments at the same time as, say, we've steered you out of the crisis. And those two things are a bit of a contradiction. Well, except the, the message could be, it's been tough, but now we're coming out. Don't chuck the captain overboard just when things are getting right. That's, that's true, but uh, that isn't precisely what they are saying. I think what they're saying is it's a very topsy-turvy world. It's very uncertain. Don't put the other lot in. Don't make another change. We've got enough enough change to deal with at the moment. And that has been a fairly persuasive kind of message for uh, conservative governments or even really just for incumbent governments in the past, more so for conservative governments. And I, So I think, you know, ratcheting up anxiety over Ukraine and, and what that means, the possibility of China, China's relationship with Russia, China's possibilities in Taiwan, all of that, it's part of making people feel uncertain at the same time, as I say, of, of, of wanting to sort of bank the political credit for having achieved this, you know, economic nirvana. And those two things, you know, they're not, they're not completely contradictory, but they will involve a bit of um, a, a game of political twister, if I could put it like that. We didn't see the initial 
Labor pile on in the in the immediate aftermath. Did this budget allow for Labor to respond, or was it just too popular? I look. I think it's it's a good question. I think the way Labor's been handling this election all the way through has been to stick fairly close to the government. Uh, what Anthony Albanese he's is a very shrewd person. I think possibly underestimated by his opponents and by some voters. He's prepared to take a few slings and arrows from his supporters for not being imaginative enough, not being sufficiently different from the government, because he wants to avoid what Scott Morrison did in 2019. In 2019, Scott Morrison turned the election into a referendum on Labor. Albanese is wanting to make this election a referendum on the government. So we've seen a fair degree of kind of unanimity with the, with the government, not just on this budget, but on a number of other things. And I expect that to continue. It's about the economy economic policy nerd. It's actually, Steve, about uh, management. As Mark was saying, who do you trust to manage? Now, the problem with the coalition saying, oh, yeah, we can get you through this petrol crisis, which I agree will be short term. That's, uh, you know, the Russia-Ukraine situation is, is likely to ease. And we've already, in fact, seen oil prices come down and petrol prices come down. <laughs> they're, still, uh, they're still above $2. But, uh, you know, that, that will pass. But the idea of them saying, we can manage you through this crisis, just puts attention on the Commonwealth's government management. You've got vaccinations, right? They took control of that. You've got the availability of rat tests. Before that, you had the availability of masks. Aged care, which is a particular Commonwealth responsibility and, and, and has which been a debacle. they do very little about in this budget. Yeah, people reward good management, but it reminds them of the good management that we haven't, the bad management we have had. But Scott Morrison didn't cause the pandemic. Australia's come out of the pandemic brilliantly. Overall, with unemployment, yes, JobKeeper, uh, whatever, JobKeeper's uh, perhaps over-generous nature, uh, I for one would have preferred it on the side of being over-generous. It worked. It worked beyond their expectations. In just the last three months since the December budget update, the government has received over the four-year forward estimates an extra $90 billion in income tax revenue. That's because of all of the people employed and they wouldn't have been employed. Unemployment wouldn't have been driven down so low were it not for JobKeeper. I agree with that point about JobKeeper in particular, which was why it was a good idea when it was suggested by the opposition. Um, <laughs> no, it's an important point because this government campaigned against what stimulatory spending Labor dialed in uh, for the uh, the GFC, you know, back in 2008-9. Yeah, Labor did it in the global, to spell it out, global financial crisis. Labor spent big. That worked. Yeah. The coalition spent bigger. That worked even more. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, we've stolen all of our good ideas from New Zealand. What does the lesson of those two things really show? It shows that you can do well in avoiding a crisis. You don't necessarily get an electoral dividend for it. We did see a Liberal senator stand up immediately after the budget speech and basically blast Scott Morrison. Does this have a cut through to ordinary people? The test on that remains to be seen. We, we don't really know. But when you think about what it, what preceded it, you know, a couple of weeks of, of genuine anguish over the shock death of uh, Labor Senator Kimberly Kitching, Morrison was very keen to sort of draw out Albanese and tie him to allegations of, of bullying and disrespect for women. And here we have a very senior former front bench woman who has been dudded in the pre-selection, replaced by a... Um, 
another man, you know, she, like a number of other people now who are quite close to the PM, have has offered a personal character assessment of the PM as as deceitful, as untrustworthy, as morally not fit to be the leader of this country. You know, we've seen a few of these now, and I think all of these things are doing quite serious damage to Morrison. The question is what, and this goes to your question, Alex, the question really is, does it change anyone's opinion of Scott Morrison? Does it actually shift people who are sitting in the middle and who could go either way? It can't help, but I'm not sure how much it hurts. In a word, who's going to win the election? Labor, that's one word. But the, the other word is a minority Labor government is probably more likely with support from those independents who do feel bad about Morrison and women who do feel bad about the management and just deciding whether to move. I'd put my money on Labor, but I don't necessarily think they'll get there by themselves. Don't rule out a hung parliament. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank a you. Great pleasure. No, don't rule out a hung parliament. I spoke to Frank Mangiono one of the country's top historians who thinks it may well happen. At the moment, there's a a big push uh, for independent candidates. I think it's unlikely that uh, we'll end up with a smaller crossbench uh, after the next election. The polling suggests Labor is well ahead, but it's clearly not going to be a uniform swing. And uh, it may well be that Labor gets a large swing, but doesn't get the seats in the right places, uh, or the vote in the right places to get the seats it needs. Its vote is very weak in Queensland. So if you ended up with another hung parliament, there are a number of possibilities. One of those is that you'll have negotiations over a minority Labor government or a minority coalition government along the lines of what happened in 2010 with with the Gillard governments and the independents at that stage. But there is one other prospect that I think a number of people have started to toy with, and that's the idea that the independents could actually exert their power to to force a change of leadership, uh, particularly on the coalition side. Given that this occurred, that we had these independents step up and all of a sudden the have the balance of power, what would it look like after the election? I mean, all of a sudden there'd be nobody in charge. What's the aftermath? Well, you'd still have a caretaker government. So um, the the current government would continue after the election in the usual way until a new government is is basically uh, sworn in. Um, So that that would be a normal transition process. I mean, in 2010, you had a 17-day period of negotiations, but there was no suggestion of a change of leadership in that. And Where I'm taking my cue from is the fact that it's happened before. It happened a long time ago in uh, uh, 1922. So you had an election in 1922. It was the first election in which the country party was in a position to effectively exercise a balance of power. That's the, the predecessor of today's nationals or today's national party. At that stage, you know, the idea of a coalition had been mooted, but it wasn't assured that it would form a coalition with the larger of the non-Labor parties. And so a period of negotiation occurred. And in that instance, Earl Page, who was leader of the country party, insisted on the removal of the prime minister of the day, Billy Hughes, who'd been prime minister since uh, 1915. So for many years, had begun as a Labor prime minister, uh, had split the party over the issue of conscription for overseas service, but it continued effectively at the head of a non-Labor or conservative government called the Nationalists, but had retained a lot of his old views and ideology. You know, it was still quite socialistic, in, at least in the view of many of his opponents. And Page decided that uh, it was time to get rid of him, basically. And so the country party, which had 14 seats and, and basically the balance of power between 
Labor and the Nationalists exerted their power to affect a change of leadership. In this scenario, we had the Treasurer step up and take over as Prime Minister. And is, is that what you are suggesting could happen in, in this as well? We'd have Josh Frydenberg take over. And, and how popular would that be with the public? Well, that would be the most likely alternative, I think, you know, if, if the decision was was basically that the independents weren't prepared to support Scott Morrison and wanted to change. I mean, Frydenberg would be the most obvious uh, replacement. That's exactly what happened in 1922. It was the treasurer of the day, Stanley Melbourne Bruce, who became prime minister. Um, that That's sort of the scenario, the, the speculation we've, we've, we've set up in, in this kind of imaginary history, really, is, is what we're, we're sketching out here. But yes, I mean, that would be the most likely. And we're assuming that he would be regarded as a more moderate figure, more to the liking of those independents, particularly uh, the so-called teal independents who are emphasising issues like climate change, uh, gender equity, uh, an anti-corruption commission and so on, particularly climate change, I think. But wouldn't that be unstable? I've always been a, a bit more optimistic about that scenario. I mean, people talk about the instability, for instance, of the Gillard period, but it wasn't unstable. In fact, <laughs> Gillard, uh, because of the agreements that were basically signed with both the Greens and Independents in 2010, was essentially in a better position to secure majorities in both houses in those years than her predecessor had been, Kevin Rudd. Um, I mean, think of the issue of a carbon market, where they did actually get their legislation through. So, yes, look, we, we, we can't assume that all of the independents would go the same way, and that in itself could be a source of instability. But, yeah, look, I don't buy that minority government need be unstable. I guess our, our supposition in putting this scenario together is that the crossbench is unlikely to be much smaller. It could be a little bigger. Professor Frank Bongiorno. It's all very well to dwell on events in the bubble, as it's called, but there were two big news stories which people really were talking about. That slap by Oscar winner Will Smith on the face of comedian Chris Rock. And secondly, Shane Warne's memorial. We asked our regular Outside the Bubble contributors, cartoonist Fiona Kataskis and writer Gary Linnell, to reflect on all this. Certainly overshadowed the budget, haven't they? Both of those things. I think that swing by Will Smith at the Academy Awards, it's the first time I think we've seen a, uh, an actor actually um, throw an authentic swing in front of the cameras. All very interesting, but let me remind you, this is a politics podcast. Does it have any bearing <laughs> on politics? Oh, I'm sure we can find a way to link it, can't we? I mean, it's, uh, it was certainly a, a high point in the lead up to the budget because there's not that many people out there I think, I mean, given the billions of dollars that are at stake and, you know, you can go on about how the future of the country is, is at the crossroads and we're coming up to this election and this budget is the, it was the last opportunity for the coalition to sort of try and win the heart, win back the hearts and minds of, of the electorate. People don't talk about that or think about that. You know, we've been looking at um, a lot of the reasons why, you know, the level of trust in Australian government has fallen so markedly over the last 15 or 20 years. And there's a large group of people out there that political scientists call the uninterested. And they're not exactly a small minority. I mean, we've had various surveys over the year that have found that up to 60% of Australians can't even recall the names of both houses of our parliament. Uh, I think 60 or 75% um, don't even know that the Senate actually represents Australia's states and that senators are there representing their states rather than individual electorates. So it's not that surprising. 
I think what we're actually seeing now is that people say, well, what are we going to do with the uninterested? How can we get them more engaged in politics? I've been looking at uh, some of those issues and it all seems to come back a lot to Australia's century-long commitment to compulsory voting. I mean, we're one of the very few democracies in the Western world that employs compulsory voting. And if you don't go along, then you face a fine or even ultimately a possible jail sentence. And one of the key arguments for compulsory voting and forcing people to the polling booth is that it leads to this greater political awareness among the public. But there's absolutely no evidence for that. I'm a fervent believer in in, uh, in compulsory voting and have just seen how optional voting... Oh, I don't, but yeah, we'll, I won't carry on about it. But one, one thing I will say in defence of, um, of compulsory voting too is that it captures the disengagement. So years ago I lived in the UK and knew some English people who were extremely politically opinionated and then when I asked them about the vote, they said, oh, no, I didn't vote that day, it was raining. And and there is that, disenga- that disengagement from voting, whereas you can, in Australia, you have to vote, but you can, you, you can also, as many people do, unfortunately, say this is a crock, you can draw a cock and balls as well, as a, a friend of mine who is an election um the AEC officer said they get a lot of those. Um, but that actually registers, instead of someone sitting at home and not being bothered to go out because it's raining, that doesn't register anywhere. There was no I was disengaged vote or anything like that. The, the informal votes also say something important, which is that people are disengaged, there is something wrong with our politics. And I think the focus is more fixing politics rather than making voting optional. We all agree that it's a civic duty to vote, isn't it? Mm. So we... we Another civic duty is that you uh, go on a jury and that you uh, do jury duty. Now, you get paid for that, so should we pay people to vote? No. <laughs> no. Why not? Why not? It, it is a remarkable thing that you know, we've been swamped with emails um, over the last two weeks from readers of the Echidna, and I, I think the overwhelming theme among them all is that they're, they're just citing this growing distrust of politicians and what they want to see is politicians that they can trust and they have integrity. And we're not getting that, that demonstrably a lot of our politicians just are not telling us the truth anymore. Fiona, if the budget has failed to get people's attention, the slap certainly <laughs> has not. Has it gotten attention from cartoonists as well? This is such a creature of social media as well, the whole reaction to this uh, thing as well. I saw I was watching on Twitter as it happened and then Americans' reaction to it and then Americans, there were a few American commentators who were lamenting that they had to go to bed while, you know, it was getting late at night. And then meanwhile, the Brit, Brit, Australia's been following this in the middle, so we've, we've sort of had the whole afternoon of it. And then uh, then the British wake up and then they all go, oh, my God, and so we sort of had this, this big wave. And, yes, straight away it was meme central within hours within an hour possibly or maybe less the young liberals had put out a meme um with that photo of the slap you know there's it's that that photo's become a slap with sort of chris rock uh having been slapped and sort of turned away with a look on his face of someone who's just been slapped and will smith making the movement and they've put chris rock is hard-working australians and will smith is labor's higher taxes so they've done the uh labelling that. So yes, straight away, that's that's been memed up, up the jacksey by all sorts of people. And the other big event of the week is Shane Warne's memorial ceremony, which coincidentally has been timed for the day after the budget when Mr Morrison could have hoped for publicity. Part of the, the reason that we've been drawn to Shane Warne over the years, and he's had his, tri- his trials and he had his ups and downs, certainly, but he was authentic. 
wasn't he? He he was a very authentic person. No matter what you thought about him or what he did, he was actually true to what he believed in. And I think that's what people have been crying out to see right across the country. We want to see more authentic people like that. I think people like like to see other people who get up, dust themselves off, admit their flaws, admit their mistakes and get on with things. Now you look back and you think, gee, he might have been actually a great candidate for federal politics. Now there's a thought. Join us again next week for another thoughtful edition of The Kidna from ACM. Listener.